Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women in BIPOC voices. We're bringing Wonder Women Tech to the airwaves. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. It's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show, and today's guest is someone that I'm super excited to chat with because there's so many golden nuggets that I know is going to come from this conversation. Lieutenant Jalisa Harrigan has made a name for herself in the field of engineering. She is a native of Danbury, Connecticut, and a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer in the United States Navy. A proud Howard University alumni with a Bachelor's of Science in Applied Mathematics and a minor in Computer Science, she was also also <laughs> an active member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Inc. I've met a few of people from that sorority, so it must be amazing. Um, <laughs> she was also part of Bison Cheerleading, the Math Club, and Pi Mu Epsilon Math Honor Society. Jalisa earned her commission through the George Washington University Navy Reserve Officers Training Corps and served aboard USS Bunker Hill, developing proficiency in leading teams through various navigation, combat systems, and tactical surface warfare scenarios. Jalisa successfully matriculated the Navy's postgraduate nuclear propulsion training pipeline, which focused on theory, design, operation, and maintenance of naval nuclear propulsion plants. In February 2020, Jalisa received the Most Promising Engineer in Government Award at the 2020 Black Engineer of the Year STEM Conference. Stationed in Millington, Tennessee as a nuclear programs manager, she prepares potential engineers for the Navy. Welcome to the show, Jalisa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Well, you know, first of all, I'm not going to lie, reading your bio and saying things like nuclear trained surface warfare and tactical and matriculated and nuclear propulsion, <laughs> it makes me sound like I am super smart. So thank you for that. <laughs> I feel like I don't even have to go to school. I can just show up somewhere and say those buzzwords and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> So before we get into the tactical warfare conversation, I'd love you to share with us all about your childhood. Where did you come from and what influenced you when you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally from a small town and I'm um, called Danbury, Connecticut. Um, so it's a town where you don't see many, um, you know, African-American uh you know, kids there. So I, I always kind of felt alone. You know, I, I went to Bethel High School. So when I was in high school, I moved to a smaller town, um, predominantly white, of course, um, where I believe my graduating class, maybe there were four African Americans or people of color um, out of maybe 250. So I always kind of felt like an oddball, mm. um, knew that I wanted to go to college. I did 
JROTC, junior officer, um, the JROTC program in high school, and that kind of encouraged me to um, do ROTC in college. So I applied for the scholarship, and I got the scholarship to go to Howard University, um, and that's where I studied math and computer science, and I really wanted to have the ultimate college experience. So I wanted to make sure that I was still fulfilling my military obligations um, as a member of the ROTC program, though at the same time, I wanted to you know, continue being active and doing things that I enjoyed, like cheerleading at the university, being a part of organizations, learning and experiencing Greek life, things like that. So I went to school, graduated, and um, then I joined the Navy, a commission in the Navy through the George Washington University ROTC program. Um, and that kind of laid the steps for today, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, were you, did you grow up you know, as an only child, or did you have siblings? What were, what was your family like? Yeah. So I came from a very different, um, type of family. So my mom and dad, uh, separated when I was very young, um, and they both remarried. Uh, so my mom has two other children. Um, I have a brother and a sister with my, on my mom's side and on my father's side, he has, um, uh, I have another brother and two younger sisters. So lots of siblings, but it was different because, you know, I, it was, I've kind of grown up in two separate households. Um, so yeah. it was almost kind of like having two separate identities because when you're, you know, when I'm at my father's house, you know, I'm with the Harrigans, you know, um, everyone with the same name. And um, it's different because when I go to my mom's house, I'm the only one with my last name. So, um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you that were the was firstborn. Uh, so my mom has one other. Uh, my oldest brother um, came before me. So I have one oh, OK. Mm-hmm. That's so that's like, you know, I'm the oldest of six, but five of us growing up and also two households. But that came when I was 13. Um, no, 15. Sorry. <laughs> 15. Um, and so I, I kind of understand a little bit about, you know, like having those um, sort of a separate identity, but also just separate family dynamics, because you're, you know, my family, my dad's side of the family are really kind of rambunctious. And my mom is like more, you know, laid back, you know, a teetotaler. So it's just it's like, who am I today? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it, as a as a child, it's very confusing, because you're really searching for your sense of identity. And it's almost like you're living two separate lives when you're with when you're in the different households. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you know, as you were growing up, what were some of the influences in your life that sort of made you even think about going into Junior ROTC and 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 all of the other um, sort of paths that you've taken? Yeah, so my mom encouraged me. So I, I was, you know, I went to school at first in Danbury, Connecticut. And then when I moved to that smaller town in Bethel, um, that was right before high school. So I had no friends and my mom was like, you know, you have to, you know, we have to start planning for college and you need to make friends. Um, so she was like, you know what, why don't you join the RTC program? And I told her, no, <laughs> this is that, that the military is not for me. I wouldn't fit in. I'm an athlete, you know, RTC just doesn't fit the mold for me. 
and she encouraged me and she said, hey, listen, well, if you want to go to college, I hear that, you know, by doing the junior ROTC program, it looks really good. You get a lot of community service, you learn bearing, um, and it looks very good for college applications. So she encouraged me to just do it for one year. Um, and um, if I liked it, I stay in. If I didn't like it, she would let me get out. So I said, okay. <laughs> um, it really wasn't, I really didn't have the choice. <laughs> My mom signed <laughs> me up for the course. So I wow. did it. Yeah. So I did it. And um, it was, it was fun. It actually was a really good time. I would say that my heart wasn't always in it. Um, but, you know, but I did it and I made friends and I learned some things and I was a part of like the drill team. And um, when it got to the point where it was time for me to apply for colleges, um, you know, a lot of times today, you know, when you're in high school, the teachers and career counselors really don't talk too much about the financial aspect of school. And um, what I knew was it wasn't about getting in, going to the best school that I can get into. It was about going to the best school that I could afford to go to, which means that <laughs> is free and under scholarship. Right. So, you know, I was a pretty good student, um, probably like a B plus student and um, didn't do that great on the SATs. Um, so I didn't get a lot of scholarships. I got some, but nothing, but not a full scholarship. So I was talking to my JROTC commander and he was like, you know what? You're really good at JROTC. Like you would be a great officer. I, I, I highly recommend that you apply for the program for the scholarship. Um, and, you know, and then when it comes to decision day on where you want to go to school and what scholarships you're going to take, you can at least have that in your pocket. So I said, okay, sir, let's do it. So I put in the application. He helped me out so much with it and I applied and got it. And when I saw that, that check <laughs> and they um, <laughs> gave me that award, I knew that this is what I was going to have to do to be able to go to college. You know, it's so interesting because you are absolutely right. I, and I, I mean, I've never thought about it that way, but you don't get that opportunity to think about um, the financial aspects of going to school, you know, like, the, especially if you're not academic, uh, like myself. Um, <laughs> so you do, you do kind of end up either like at community college, you know, or, or your local universities. And those of us that are, are lucky to be able to go to, uh, you know, um, other universities and Ivy League uh, universities, it's really interesting that you don't think about it that way. You know, like, what what do I have access to? Like, what's actually at my fingertips, you know? And most of us don't have that opportunity. So it does take, uh, you know, that extra person to say, like, have you thought about, you know, like, ROTC or the Navy? Have you thought about, um, you know, you going going into sports and using that as an opportunity for scholarships? Have you thought about loans? You know, so that's, that's an interesting thing. Because I remember when I was going to school, and I met those same challenges of, you know, coming back, coming from a very poor family. And uh, the, again, there's five of us, how do you fund for five children? You know, what was available to me was community college, and then going on from there. So I, I think it's such an important conversation to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you know, you, what you mentioned that like, this wasn't your first path was, was there something that you were interested in before, you know, you, 
walk down this road? Yeah. So (laughs) I've always been into politics. I wanted to, so when I was initially applying to to colleges, I was applying for a major in like political science or international affairs. Um, But then when I earned my scholar, when I received the scholarship for ROTC, um, (laughs) there are tiers, right? So there's tier one, tier two, and tier three. And I believe I had either tier one or tier two, meaning that I had to have a degree that was STEM relating. So either, you know, math, physics, chemistry, or engineering. So I was like, oh man, like I can't study exactly what I wanted, but, but then, you know, I spoke to my parents about it and I was like, you know what? I'm actually pretty good at math. Um, pretty good. Meaning when I work really hard, I'm able to succeed. (laughs) Not like it's natural to me. I put a lot of time in high school trying to get better. So when I graduated, um, uh, by the time I graduated high school, I would have already completed um, calculus one and two. So really, I was like, okay, you know what? I don't really know about engineering. I'm not too familiar with it, but I do know that I'm already ahead in math. I already have two classes in my degree plan done. <laughs> so um, I went on and took the math degree. Yeah, you know, I love this because it just kind of shows how you are inspired by what you're what you're exposed to, right? To go into mm-hmm. like different fields, you knew that you had to have certain degrees to continue on your plan, your career plan, and it shaped what would later become your career because you do have a degree uh, in applied mathematics and computer science. So, you know, what was that journey like for you being a B plus student and now (laughs) you're going into like these very intense fields? It was, it was a challenge. It was absolutely a challenge. So is your question more so geared towards college or post-college Navy? Well, you know, through college, like what was that journey like? Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, but um, I've always been the type of person where if I work really hard, so my effort would usually correlate to how I would perform. So if I put in the time and I studied really hard and I made some sacrifices, I'd be successful. And that pretty much was, was college for me. Um, so I had to put in the time, I had to go to the tutors and stuff like that, but it ended up working and I, I found my I found myself actually enjoying my studies. Hmm. Surprisingly enough, yeah. <laughs> well, this I mean, I'm I was the opposite. So like <laughs> you know, one of the common themes I do hear from these amazing women in leadership and STEM leadership is that often many of them say I wasn't a great student. I just had to apply myself. So it just really reinforces the theme that you can really do whatever you want to do as long as you do make that effort and apply yourself and make it happen. Absolutely. So you're studying to be an engineer. You're cracking open the books. You're hard at work coding on your computer. At (laughs) what point, like at what point did you decide, yeah, I need to be a cheerleader too? (laughs) it was about the whole so one of the things my dad used to tell me growing up was you 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 work hard now so that you can enjoy things later 
And he said that my entire life. And honestly, I resent those words because (laughs) a lot of times you work so hard that you miss out on opportunities and you miss out on experiences. So what I told myself was, okay, you know what? I'm doing the ROTC thing. I know I'm going to join the Navy. I'm not exactly sure if I really want to be in the Navy, but you know what? While I'm in school, I want to have fun. I want to do the things. I want to have the college experience that I've always thought I was going to have, um, despite being in the military, right? And um, so I did cheerleading. I, when I was in high school, I, I did cheerleading um, during the fall, and I ran track during the spring. So I told myself my freshman year uh, that um, I was going to I, – I, I, I enjoyed cheerleading way more than track because it was just more fun. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So I told yeah, so I told myself my freshman my freshman year that I was going to apply for um for the cheerleading squad and um if I made it then awesome and if I didn't make it then I would see if I could walk onto the track team. And I tried out and of course, you know, I, I I'm from small town Bethel, Danbury, Connecticut. Um cheerleading um and places like that is way different than cheerleading at an HBCU. There's a little bit more dancing, a little bit more pop, a little bit more spunk. Um, so it was, it was also a <laughs> challenge for me to kind of learn how to, to cheerlead differently. Um, but I made the team and um, it was so much fun. Because I imagine, because you mentioned, you know, being one of like four black students. I imagine, were you the only black cheerleader? Um, in high, in, in high school. When you were a cheerleader. Yeah. So when I was a cheerleader in high school, um, there was one other, um, there was one other black cheerleader. Um, but then when I went to college, I went to Howard, you know, completely oh, different yeah. culture, Yeah, <laughs> completely different culture. And everyone was black. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still know any of the cheers? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. Sometimes I, sometimes I hear certain songs or I still follow um, Howard University cheerleaders on um, Instagram and we have a little network. So I see the girls post, um, you know, some of their cheers and some of their dances. And sometimes when I'm bored, <laughs> I do them by myself at home. <laughs> I love that. Can you can you say a little cheer? <laughs> okay, um let me think of a good one. Okay, this one I liked. It was it takes a bison to do what we do. It takes a bison to push it on through. It takes a bison to watch what we watch. It takes a bison to pump it nonstop. And that was a cheer that we did and we that used to just get everyone in the crowd excited and up and it was a it was a fun cheer (laughs) well you know I'm gonna have that and probably the listeners we're gonna have this in our heads all day right (laughs) (laughs) and I'm gonna walk down the street it takes a bison (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh thank you for indulging me on that I did not really think you would do it but you know what I love you Delisa (laughs) I'm so here for that Um, (laughs) so like at what point did you actually decide to join the Navy? And and what did that process look like? You know, did you, did you get recruited in high school? Or like, what did that look like for you? Yeah, so all it was, was me talking to my JROTC 
um, instructor and him telling me to apply. And I feel like I blinked two times, told them I take the scholarship and I found myself a part of the (laughs) ROTC program. And it's really funny because a week before school starts was when we had our our drill week or um, indoctrination. So they would send us off to a, a base where we kind of go through many a mini miniature boot camp. And it was so funny because I really had no idea what I was signing myself up for. They told us to pack all these things. And when I tell you, like I brought, I packed, they said pack clothes and, you know, things like that. I packed dresses. I packed um, (laughs) makeup. I was ready to just have a good week for this indoctrination. And to my surprise, as soon as I got there and the parents, you know, we waved uh, you know, we said goodbye to our families and they put us on that bus. I was in rude awakening. It was crazy. <laughs> I was like, I guess I'm not going to use any of this stuff. I am not prepared. And mentally, like it was, it was just, um, it was something else. <laughs> I have to tell you, Jaleesa, I'd be in that camp too, because I wear dresses <laughs> almost exclusively. And I see myself like with my cowboy boots and my dresses and my crowns, I wear crowns and I totally would be outside of my comfort zone. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's exactly how I felt like a fish out of water. And, um, and it was, it was so weird because it, it just so happened to be the freshman week at Howard university. So I thought that I was going to have the opportunity. So my RTC unit was at George Washington University while I was studying at Howard. So there was a little commute there, take the metro. But I assumed that, you know, I would do the ROTC stuff during the day and be able to take the metro and get back to campus to enjoy all the freshman festivities um, for the rest of the day. And to my surprise, it was not that at all. <laughs> I was so <laughs> caught off guard. <laughs> Well, you know, what were you feeling and experiencing those first years, you know, being in the Navy? Because you do have to, I mean, it, it, it is a such a vast difference from like your everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, while you're in RTC, the RTC program does a really good job um, teaching you the fundamentals, leadership, um, some seamanship, military history, things like that. But you really don't know what it's like to be in the Navy until you're in the Navy. And I graduated in 2014 and I was um, assigned to the USS Bunker Hill. And I went through my, after I graduated, I went through my training. It was called BDOC, Basic Division Officer School. Um, And uh, right after I finished that training, they flew me off to deployment. And oh my goodness, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready. Like I, I knew what I I thought I knew what it was like to be a leader. I thought I knew what it was going to be like to be in the Navy, but I never actually envisioned what it would be like and the sacrifices that you have to give while you're actually out at sea. And we were on deployment. It was a nine and a half month deployment. Um, and it was, it was challenging. It was challenging to, to go to kind of, to, First off, not being able to talk to your friends and families often. Um, And then, you know, to just, you're just in it. Like you're out to sea, so you have to learn how to drive the ship. So I start off as, I'm a surface warfare officer. So the ultimate um, goal is to get your SWO pin, surface warfare officer pin. And that pin basically says that, okay, like I am the jack of all trades, basically. So I've learned engineering. I've learned um, some of 
I learned how to drive the ship. I learned all the basics and I learned how to be a, a basic leader in the Navy, an officer, a division officer. And to go from a school where, you know, BDOC, where you're in class from, let's say, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're out to sea and that ship is 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 out there sailing all day and night. So there are watches and so you're on a watch bill. So you have to learn, okay, like how do I, how do, how am I able to manage learning how to drive a ship while standing a watch, while having a division and people that rely on me? So it was, it was absolutely um, challenging. And I felt like the, um, I felt like it was very abrupt um, but not, but not everyone has that experience, right? So some people join the Navy and they meet their ship in the shipyard where, you know, they go home every day so they can slowly kind of get adjusted. So, but for me, I kind of just went into it and had to learn. Dove right in. <laughs> like, I dove right literally. in. Literally. <laughs> exactly. I mean, was there, was there, cause you talk about the different challenges and clearly you've, you've become a leader, but you know, was there ever a moment when you doubted yourself and you were just like, I'm done? Yeah. Um, that was when I was going through my nuclear training. So after I finished my first tour on the USS Bunker Hill and I earned my SWO pin, um, all SWO nukes have to go through the nuclear training pipeline, which is ultimately a year, a year long. Uh, the first six months is nuclear power school, and the um, next six months is uh, prototype. So nuclear power school is where you learn the basics of um, nuclear energy, nuclear power. You you learn the theory. So when I say basics, I mean like the theory and fundamentals. And you learn about radiation and all of that. And for me, um, it was very challenging. I have never struggled so hard in school my entire life. Um, like I mentioned before, I've always been the type where, you know, you work really hard and then if I work hard, I do well. There's a correlation. But this was the first time ever where I worked extremely hard, but my my grades um, did not really correlate to the amount of effort. And, um, you know, being that I was a hard worker, I was putting in almost... A normal work week is 40 hours, and I was putting in an additional, probably an additional six hours a day, in addition mm. to the 40-hour work week, studying. Because you can't bring the, you know, obviously things are classified and secret, so you can't bring the material um, off campus, off base. Um, but yeah, I was studying really hard and barely passing, barely meeting the mark, you know, and it was very discouraging. And it kind of got to the point where um, it was taking a toll because, you know, I was going into that building seven days a week and I wasn't taking care of myself, really. Like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't working out. Um, it got to the point where like I wasn't, you know, some of the things, the basic things that you do every day, right? Like I was forgetting because I was so consumed in my studies. And like, I'll, I'll never forget, there was one time where um, I guess I made some food and I didn't even realize I put the food container, instead of putting it in the refrigerator, I put that thing in a cabinet, the back <laughs> of a cabinet. 
I have no idea how I did this. And when I tell you, like, you know, after like a couple days, you know, it starts to smell. So I am going crazy cleaning my apartment. Crazy. You know, I am, I am mopping, deep cleaning, cleaning the baseboard, looking. I'm like, something died. Like, what is going on? And maybe like a couple weeks later, I was cleaning the insides of my cabinets and then I, and that's where I found it. And, um, I was like, wow, like I'm, this is too much, right? This is too much. I'm in over my head. I'm working really hard. And I was kind of, so I was starting to, um, have anxiety. I had test anxiety. So days before exams, I couldn't sleep. I would even, you know, take melatonin and things like that, sleep aids, but it, it wouldn't work. I would always find myself waking up at probably around one thirty in the morning, um, to, so that I can think about the, all of the equations that I had to memorize for the exam. It was insane. So I don't remember what triggered this, but at some point I was exhausted and I was thinking like, you know, enough is enough. I'm so tired. And, um, and that's when I said, you know what, like, I can't do this anymore. So I'm going to do the bare minimum. I'm not going to study all these extra hours. I'm going to make sure that I have my Sundays off so that my Sundays off so that I have a day to just reset. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to study any more than two additional hours a day. Right. And, um, so in a sense that was me kind of giving up, but not giving up. Like I'm going to still do what I have to do because this is my job, but I can't give this everything anymore. I need I need to get myself back. I need to be, I need to find a balance. And um, I kid you not, after about a week and a half of doing that, my grades were so much better. I went from barely passing an exam. So I believe, so our exams were graded on like a, like a 4.0 scale, right? So to pass an exam, I believe at the time it was like a 2.5. So you needed, so we used to say 2.5 to stay alive. Right. (laughs) And (laughs) I was always like on that line. So between like a 2.45 and a 2.6. But I kid you not, once I kind of took a step back and started making more time for myself, I was getting 3.0s to 3.3s, which was, which was huge for me. It was like a great accomplishment. And I continued doing that. I continued um, doing a little bit less, like still working hard, but finding that balance. And I think what was happening was I was so consumed in trying to get a better grade that um, I probably wasn't really using my time effectively. Like I was there studying, but because I knew that I was going to be there all day, um, maybe I wasn't being as effective. So when I changed that, those, those limits, and I said, okay, like no matter what, I can't study on Sunday. And if this test is on Monday, it is what it is. So when I was there Monday through Friday, I had to take that time very seriously. And, um, I'm so happy that I, 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 that realization came because, um, you know, when you, when you consume yourself and, and it, you know, and it's not just the military, it's work in general. Um, you, you'll go crazy. You'll go crazy. Yeah. So yeah, that powerful. was definitely the time. Yeah, I mean, it's such a powerful case study for, you know, those of us like myself. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, she, she's she's telling the truth, Lisa May, and you, you're guilty of this. So I go through moments of just hardcore 
work, 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 not having moments for myself, and then essentially literally burning yourself out and not Mm -hmm. being able to perform at all because you run yourself ragged, right? And it sounds like you had just hit a wall where you had to create balance, but also boundaries because, you know, you felt that demanding lifestyle and you felt you had to meet it where it was at. But no, you had to create boundaries. And and in doing that, and creating balance and creating time for yourself, you were able to perform better, which is something that I don't think we get because it doesn't make it doesn't compute, but it but it is actually the truth. Yeah, it's 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 really ironic. And I love that you said creating boundaries because I actually don't I didn't realize I don't I didn't realize it until now that those were boundaries and they were so necessary. Yeah. You know, you're a nuclear trained surface warfare officer. So what exactly is that? And can you share with us like what your role entails? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so service warfare officer, um, we get that our first tour where you learn how to drive, to drive a warship and lead sailors. Um, and then you go through the nuclear training. So now, so when you think of aircraft carriers, they are very, very, very large vessels, right? And you think like, how am I going, what kind of generators, how am I going to create the power to move these warships? You know, you think of if you had to use gas, could you imagine how much gas it would take, how much fuel we would have to use um, to, to drive an aircraft carrier? When you think about an aircraft carrier, think of, you know, a vessel that ha- that can house, you know, up to about 5,000 people, you know. Wow. Yes, 5,000 people. Um, tons and tons of aircraft, and you think of all the machinery, and they are very large vessels, right? So what the Navy has is we have um, nuclear reactors inside of these aircraft carriers, and that's what creates that power for propulsion and electrical power. So um, as a surface warfare um, nuke, my job is to manage one of the nuclear uh, power plants. So um, I so I will have a division. So for me, I was at first the reactor propulsion division officer. So what that means is the mechanics that worked for me primarily um, worked on, um, we owned the turbine generators. We owned the main engines. Um, and uh, we owned all of the steam plant auxiliaries, so not the reactor stuff. And um, so I, I managed that division, and that was one of my jobs. But my primary role, so when I got to my first ship, so when I got to my ship, my reactor officer told us that um, our primary role as a nuke is to stand watch and stand a good watch, which means, you know, um, I am sitting in this room, um, and the room where we control um, the reactor. So I stand watch and I have, you know, the the throttlemen with me. So the, the guys who are um, working with uh, the, the bridge to answer the bell um, and go, you know, as fast as we need to go. And then I have the reactor operator and the reactor operator is the person that's controlling the power. Um, so, yeah, so I stand watch and I maintain um, the reactor plant. I I am the leader on watch. So um, any actions or anything that happens in that engineering plant um, goes through me, right? So 
um, any maintenance. So let's say my mechanics need to work on um, a main engine for maintenance, for uh, periodic uh, pre-planned maintenance. Um, it has to go through me because guess what? That affects the whole ship. So I have to communicate with the um, uh, the engineering officer of the watch, um, who typically is a department head. So they've been in, um, uh, you know, about seven years longer than me at that moment. Uh, and uh, I am, you know, coordinating with them and they're coordinating with the officer of the deck, which is the person that is driving the warship um, to make sure that um, whatever maintenance we're doing does not impact the um, maneuvers and the mission of the ship. So yeah, I'm, I'm essentially just a, uh, an officer leading the engineering plant in the reactor room. So like, do you participate in war games? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, so on ships, we do have opportunities to, um, to have different types of, uh, games with other, uh, with other navies. And sometimes we get to do, um, different types of maneuvers with them and things like that. Um, and, as an engineer, I really don't get to see all that kind of stuff because I am in the engineering plant. You know, there's no windows there. So we, we don't see really what the bridge is doing. But my role is really to make sure that as we are, you know, working with other navies or maneuvering that <clears throat> that we make sure that we the reactor and the steam plant is set up such that we are able to um, so that we're not limited. So limited mm. by power, limited by how fast we can go. That's so fascinating. You know, I never thought about naval ships before and thinking about the fact that they're actually like little mini miniature cities. <laughs> yes, it's insane. There's a Starbucks on the aircraft carrier. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love it. So, you know, you're a mentor and you prepare potential engineers to join the Navy. What do you do to prepare them, especially coming from like your background when you weren't exactly sure, but now you're in the position to prepare others. Yeah. So it's really just being honest with them and, and letting them know all the opportunities that come from um, this job. So with my current job, I am in the accessions office. So what'll happen is before there's only one person that can admit um, uh, anyone into the nuclear Navy and that is the Admiral, right? So, what happens is, is you have to, so you have to be interviewed. So the interview consists of the, they'll fly you out to Washington, DC. This is before you're in the Navy. So they'll fly you off to Washington, DC, where you'll have two technical interviews with Naval reactors. So you'll get these two technical interviews completed. And that's where they assess you based off of calculus and physics. So they'll ask you whatever question they want, um, questions that they would like um, in the realm of calculus and physics. Sometimes they'll ask you um, other questions. So technically, anything that's on your transcript is fair game. Technical questions. And they give recommendations. And those recommendations are then um, submitted to the admiral. And then you will, um, the applicant will interview with the admiral. And the admiral will decide based off of the recommendations that he's received from the engineers. Um, and based off of his interview with you, whether or not he will allow anyone into the program, um, which is really cool. Um, and I think it's awesome because, um, 
being a nuclear engineer for the Navy is very challenging because um, technically, you know, there, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of material, um, but also you have to be a, you have to have certain leadership traits because, you know, there have been moments when I've been on watch and things broke or things happened. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you cannot forget that you are in charge of a nuclear reactor. So, you know, sometimes making a mistake could be catastrophic, right? So mm. um, the, the Admiral has to have trust in you um, and in these, you know, applicants that they have the maturity, the technical acumen, and the person, the personal skills to be able to work with people um, so that you can work with people so that you can, you know, in the event of things going wrong, you can work together as a team with your watch team um, to get things done. So when I meet new applicants, I tell them about the process. I tell them the importance of leadership um, because being smart is important, but, you know, also being a good leader is, 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 and also, you know, not, you know, a lot of times you'll find people that are smart and they think that they know it all. Um, but one thing that I've learned being in the Navy, especially as a nuclear engineer, is it's humbled me because I learned that I'm, you know, I'm not always right. So a lot of times things will happen or there'll be a plan to um, accomplish or to do certain tasks. So, you know, I'll come up with a plan and I'll talk to my watch team. We'll brief it and I'll tell them what I want to do. And then I'll leave the floor open and they, they give me backup. So that's one of our, our general principles that we, um, that we like kind of live by that watch team backup. And a lot of times I said, you know, I told my team, Hey guys, like I want to get this, this, and that done these ways. And there were times where my sailors were like, no, ma'am, I don't think that's a good idea because of X, Y, and Z. So then what do we do? We kind of move to the side, we open up the technical manuals and we determine whether or not their statement was valid. And if it was valid, then it was like, wow, thanks for helping me out. You know, we're, we're a team. So, um, you know, that, that, that ability to work with people and not think that you're always right is, is super important. So I talk about that. And then, you know, they ask me about the challenges and I am so honest with them. I let them know. I let them know that I struggled in power school, but I made it. And honestly, and, you know, and based off of, you know, my hard work and the, the sailors that worked with me and all of their help, um, you know, I was able to be very, very successful. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, just being honest with these applicants is very important. And then also letting them know about the advantages to staying in. There's a lot of, um, as a nuclear engineer for the Navy, um, they, they provide lots of different bonuses and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you want to join and be, you know, a nuclear engineer for the Navy, it doesn't have to always be career because there's so many opportunities um, outside of the Navy after you get that, that leadership experience. And I tell them everything um, because I want them to be, <laughs> I want them to be informed. <laughs> they need to be informed because it's you know, not easy. <laughs> That is truth. That is that is so true. And that's what I love about you, Jaleesa. I can, I can see that you tell it like it is. And that is such a valuable trait. And with that, we're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Grace Hopper. Computer programmer Grace Hopper helped develop a compiler in 1952 
that was a precursor to the widely used COBOL language and became a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy. Hopper joined the U.S. Navy during World War II and was assigned to program the Mark I computer. She continued to work in computing after the war, leading the team that created the first computer language compiler, which led to the popular COBOL language. She resumed active naval service at the age of 60, becoming a rear admiral before retiring in 1986. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Grace Hopper. Hello, innovators. We are back with Lieutenant Jalisa Harrigan talking about being a nuclear trained surface warfare officer in the U.S. Navy and how smart it makes me sound to say naval nuclear propulsion plants. <laughs> Jalisa, you've had the opportunity to travel the world with the U.S. Navy. Can you share with us some of your memorable moments and favorite cities? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let's see. So my last deployment, we went to um, Palma de Mallorca, which is in Spain. So it's an island right off of Spain. And my goodness, they have the best paella and sangrias I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for that. Yes. So that place was awesome. My first deployment, I had the opportunity to go to um, Perth, Australia. We went to Perth, Australia. Mm. And that was a lot of fun. We um, It was after a nine and a half month deployment and um, they wanted to, I guess they wanted to reward us and kind of give us some, um, some time off. And we were there for almost six or seven days. We were there for, which is a very long time for a port visit. And we got to, you know, hang out in Perth and try some food. And it was great. Try some alligator there. It was awesome. Oh, I don't know about that, but (laughs) (laughs) that's so cool. I mean, I love traveling the world. So any opportunity to do so and I, and I don't have to pay for it. I'm here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The Navy definitely offers a lot of really good opportunities. Um, Some of my friends um, have traveled, you know, they've been in just as long as I have. And some of them have traveled to like 20 to 30 countries while in the Navy so far. Um, It's Mm. it's insane. So parlez-vous français? Um, Petit peu. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit. I know nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) I read you are a real estate investor and you're passionate about financial literacy. So how did you get into real estate and what motivated you to teach others about financial literacy? Yeah. So, um, I bought my, so I bought my first house, uh, back in 2017 and, um, that was when I realized, you know, I I previously was stationed out in San Diego, California and my goodness, I don't remember how much it was, but rent there was probably almost $2,000 a month, you know? So I was spending a lot of money for, for like rent. a one bedroom, right? <laughs> exactly. For like a one bedroom, one bathroom. It was, it was insane. 
And um, so I finally got stationed out in Norfolk and I, I, I did the math one day and I was like, oh my goodness, like I spent so much, I've spent so much money on rent. I wonder how much I would spend if I bought a house. Um, and luckily, you know, I have, I'm very fortunate being that I am, you know, in the military. So I have the opportunity to use my VA loan, which is a great loan. So if you know anyone in the military, definitely recommend that they exercise it because you have the opportunity to purchase a home without having to um, use a down payment. Um, so that's huge. And yeah, so I bought my first house and I did this thing kind of called house hacking where you get roommates and they pay your mortgage for you. So uh, <laughs> it was great. I had two roommates on a decent size. I had a three bedroom, two and a half bathroom house and they pretty much paid my mortgage and I was able to save a lot of money. And from there, I just realized, oh my goodness, like, why aren't people doing these things? Like, why aren't people, why are people, you know, if you have the ability to, to purchase a home, why rent forever when you can buy and have something that's for yourself? And, you know, let's say you, you, you move on and you, you, you move to another house, you can rent it and allow, you know, other people to live in the home while it builds equity. So that was kind of the beginning. And since then, um, you know, I've purchased another home and I'm doing the same thing. And um, I've also refinanced my first house and all of my friends, you know, they like to reach out to me and ask questions. And I'm usually like their little assistant while they're purchasing their houses. And I'm kind of going through the whole process with them and, um, you know, giving them, you know, some of the recommendations that, you know, and telling them some of the, you know, some of the good things, some of the good decisions that I've made, and then also some of the lessons learned um, that I have from, you know, purchasing houses in the past. So what you're saying is you're going to teach me how to invest in real estate. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm still a beginner. You know, I don't know everything, but um, I've definitely learned so much. And um, I love I love sharing. I love sharing that knowledge. It's, you know, so, so my brother, um, he's actually a millionaire and he does, he has his own construction company, but he also buys houses, rehabs them, sells them or rehabs them and rents them. Um, and he just has like houses in, you know, New Mexico and then Oklahoma, you know, places where you could afford um, mm -hmm. to go where I, w I mean, I live in Southern California. So I, I, I'm <laughs> listening to you and I'm paying over $2,000 a month. Um, so I, I get it. And, and, you know, it's crazy because, um, you know, we're not as close as I would like to be for a number of reasons. We're kind of on the opposite political spectrum, but, um, he really kind of does inspire me. You know, recently I started thinking about like, I should really be doing something uh, to create sort of an independent wealth plan because, you know, for me, I just pour everything back into my, my companies. Like I've never actually thought outside of that. Like to, my house is my company. So, you know, <laughs> but I like, as I'm getting older, I am thinking differently about that, you know, and I love hearing about you also teaching people about financial literacy, because, you know, for me growing up, we were super poor, both my parents, like none of them really um, had game plans for like setting up, setting ourselves up for financial success. You know, what you do with money is you just, you spend the money. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I really enjoy that you're creating opportunities for people to learn. Yes. 
Thank you. Yeah. And it's so important to me um, because, you know, I, I just really wish, you know, in high school that there were programs for us to learn more about finances. You know, when you're you're in middle school and high school, you, you go through special education, you go through some, you know, where I was from, we took like culinary arts and we did like, you know, those types of courses. We did woodworking and, you know, th- those were all great and fun, but man, I, it, it would have saved me a lot of problems if I learned about finances, like just the basics, even, you know, like we talked about before, you know, kids applying to, to colleges, you know, they're applying to colleges and they're trying to get into the best school that they can get into, but they're not really paying attention to what does it mean to go to the school and how much is it going to cost me later? How much debt am I going to be? And, and based off of the occupation that I desire, am I going to be able to pay it off within a reasonable amount of time? Yeah, we don't think about that. Because I mean, we really do need to revamp our educational system is, is all I'm saying, because when are you going to whittle yourself something down the road? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's so true, you know, I because I admittedly will say, you know, especially launching my own companies, you know, 2008. Um, I had no idea I made so many financial mistakes you know, for years, years and years, because well, one, I didn't really have a mentor. But two, I didn't have any kind of financial literacy, which is why I'm so, uh, you know, passionate about it, you know, now and partnering with financial institutions to be able to teach women, especially and, and people of color, because we don't have access to that type of education. Absolutely, absolutely. And a, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times we learn from our mistakes and, you know, by the time, you know, you make your mistake, you know, that mistake that you made when you were in college by, you know, um, you know, maxing out your credit card and then paying it off and then closing it off. Like you realize, Oh my goodness, it affects me five years later, five years later. It's still four years later. It's still affecting my credit, you know, and, and, and credit is everything, right? You can't buy a house. You can't, do anything without good credit. Or if you do, you're going to, you know, you'll be stuck paying way more than you, you should. You know, from everything I've heard, you have quite a busy life. So what do you do to unwind and create balance that you've learned to create balance? And what's yes. next in the pipeline for you? Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I actually recently started meditating in the morning. Um, my father, my, my father's been meditating for the last, um, eight months and I've seen like him meditating and then him like, uh, writing down his goals have been, you know, he's been able to accomplish all of his goals and he's also been more peaceful. Um, so I've been Mm -hmm. meditating more for one, um, and two working out is really important to me. Um, I noticed that when I wake up and I work out in the morning, I'm more productive and I have better days. Um, so I like to go to the gym for about 45 minutes to an hour, about four to five times a week. I like to meditate. Um, what else do I do? COVID is different, right? Like with COVID, you can't really do some of the things that you really, really like to do. Um, because I love going out to restaurants. (laughs) That's like my (laughs) thing. (laughs) Um, happy hour sangria. I I see you, Jaleesa. I see you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So COVID has definitely, you know, affected that, but, um, yeah. And just kind of, and also, you know, I I love going, I, I try, um, once a month or if not once every other month to kind of just get a massage to like decompress, 
you know, so just like doing the little things to, to treat yourself. Um, self-care. What I enjoy. Self-care. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness, you know, I, so I, I go through periods where I'm super, super focused on meditation. It's, it used to be a huge part of my world for many, many years. In fact, Wonder Women Tech came to me through a meditation, believe it or not. And I recently realized like, you know, I've been really kind of chaotic. COVID has thrown us all for a loop. And I've really, you know, I did go through a number of very challenging things, which I've talked about in previous shows. Um, which kind of put me off my game. And I recently, very, very recently, um, like this week, <laughs> decided mm-hmm. like, you need to get back to your practice, Lisa May. I got a spin bike, you know, start working out again, because I've like most people have the quarantine pounds. Um, and then also <laughs> just meditating. And I love what you yeah. said about your dad, like being able to accomplish his goals, because he wrote them down. And I, you know, I have stopped doing that. I know that that works and I've stopped. So this was such an important reminder for me. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And honestly, like, you know, it's, it's so easy to kind of get off, get off your game. Um, Cause you can have a very productive week or two. And then, you know, something happens like, I don't know, your friend gets married. So you have to go off to the wedding and help out with that. And you completely forget, you know, still taking that time to meditate, still taking that time to write down, what's important to you or what you're looking to accomplish. Um, and yeah, just being consistent, it can be very challenging. And I, I, I work and that's something that I am working on. You know, one of my goals for this year was to try to, you know, read the Bible daily and I will have moments where, or, you know, periods of time where I do it, you know, every day just for 10 to 15 minutes, but then I won't do it for a month. You know, <laughs> mm, yeah, I mean, because once you get off the wagon, oh, my God, is it's like a spiral downward effect where you're just done for a, a week or two or like, as you said, months. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, like as I'm talking, I, I'm thinking, you know, Lisa May, what can you do? Like what kind of like affirmation, which I read that you you do positive affirmations, but like mm-hmm. what kind of affirmation or promise can you give yourself? And I, I you know what I'm going to do right now? Because one of my biggest issues, and I think it just derails the day because I don't like get on the spin bike or do meditate in the morning. Like the first thing I do, and I know many, many, many people can relate. I grab my phone and then I'm mm-hmm. in the, 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 the apps and I'm in the, like, a, it's a never ending spiral. I could get up at six in the morning and from six to eight in the morning, I'm on my cell phone, like yeah. checking the apps, <laughs> talking, chatting, like doing nonsensical things that really don't matter. Like it's, it's fun, but it doesn't matter. So you know what? Like, Jalisa, I'm. I just decided right here, right now. Like in the mornings, first thing I'm gonna do, put. I'm gonna leave my phone wherever it is, and and keep it moving with some meditation and and and, and get on my spin bike. Absolutely. You know, here at Wonder Women Tech, we are so passionate about being vulnerable and sharing with each other, um, because we feel like it's a superpower. So can you share with us something that you've never shared with anyone else before? Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Is there a... It could be like something you're launching. It could be something that you're feeling, a vulnerable moment. It could be an admission of, you know, childhood 
things. We've had it all on this show. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Okay, sure. All right. When, okay. So being, you know, that I'm very interested in, you know, financial literacy and achieving financial independence, I am actually um, in the process of launching a website. Um, Mm. And the goal is to get it out um, before April 1st. And the website um, will be titled The Tipsy Investor. Um, It's about investing and just having a good time while you're doing it. So I always have a glass of wine with me. Um, And for me, you know, I've never been big on social media or anything like that. Um, I'm often to myself. So um, publishing this website is definitely very vulnerable for me because I feel like I'm putting myself out there. Um, I'm worried about, you know, um, what people may say or reactions or comments. Um, But I think it's so important that I, that I share what I learn, and then even, you know, have this platform where, you know, people that know more than me can also participate in discussions and teach me and teach others so that we can, as a community, um, and and as a community, I'm really focused towards, um, you know, young, uh, you know, young adults, um, mostly uh, from, you know, Latino, African-American backgrounds, um, so more, more so underprivileged uh, backgrounds. Um, to teach about, you know, financial independence and, you know, steps that we can take together to um, be independent and not have to rely solely on one income or have to rely on a pension. So, yeah, that is something that I've been working on. And I can't lie, like, it's a source of anxiety for me, because I am so worried to, um, you know, for negative comments or, you know, to, um to not get the approval of others, but you know, I, I'm going to do it. And, um, man, I love it. (laughs) I'm going to do it with a glass of wine too. I mean, I'm going to tune in, I'm going to watch it. So you, you at least have (laughs) one person that is here for it all. Jaleesa, I'm so excited for you. I can't wait. And I love, love, love the name. I can totally (laughs) relate. You've led an amazing life. Looking back, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? Mm, great question. Uh, looking back, I would not change anything. Um, you know, and, and, and it's because I know that, you know, sometimes you have to do things that are different um, or, you know, kind of have to, you're going to have moments in your life where things are challenging or moments when you're unhappy. But I do think that, um, those moments are important. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, there's, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm still trying to figure that out, but, um, I would definitely, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change anything. For a while, while I was going through the nuclear pipeline, I was like, oh my goodness, like, why, why do I do this to myself? Why do I always try, you know, to accomplish these tasks that just are so challenging? Like, why do I overdo it? And um, I think that's just my personality. So if I were to say, you know, I would do it the easy way, I don't think I'd be happy. I think I'd get bored. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with you, Jaleesa. Well, I'm so 
glad that you did not take the easy road because then we wouldn't be sitting here chatting <laughs> about all the amazing things you are doing in the world. And thank you so much for being here, Jalisa. I've had an amazing time chatting with you and I will absolutely keep watch for your Tipsy Investor blog. Thank you so much, Lisa May. This has been such a great opportunity and I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, Innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.